Welcome to Downton. Hello there. Emma speaking. Welcome to Shall We Go Through, the Downton Abbey fan podcast. What? 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 Hello, everyone. I hope you're doing well, that you have recovered from my last episode. If you have listened to it, uh, as I'm recording this, I'm not completely well. I'm not gonna lie. These episodes are really, really hard for me. So this one is also gonna be a bit difficult, I think. Because today we're here to talk about episode 6 of season 3 of Downton Abbey that I called The One with the Great Sorrow. And this episode is going to be structured in the same way than the previous one. The storylines are in the same order. So the most heartbreaking part, well the most heartbreaking part for me I guess, is going to be at the end. So the whole thing around Sybil and Cora and Robert and all that be at the end so if you want to listen to the beginning and just stop before <laughs> the gray angst you can i mean there's no there's no obligation for you to actually listen to this episode so yeah you do whatever you want and well let's just start shall we so like i said i'm going to follow the same uh structures so i'm going to start talking about anna and bates um because you know anna she found like they found the proof that bates was innocent and she has spoken to Murray and everything seemed, well, like everything seemed settled. But Mr. Durant and Craig wants revenge on Bates. So you know that it's not going to be that easy. At the beginning of the episode, Anna, she's with Mary and they talk about it. And Mary asks, but why is he not free yet? And so Anna says, but it's because Mr. Murray hasn't spoke to Mrs. Bartlett yet. And we don't know if she would like to say what she said to me, because if she knows they would alter the verdict, maybe she wouldn't say and all that. And Mary says, well, she has to, you know, like we need some good news. Like this is the moment we've been waiting for. Like we need this. And Anna, she's very moved by this. She says, no, it's so nice of you to say we. I mean, they've, they've been through thick and thin, the two of them. And really, Mary's like, well, we need good news. Like, we all wretched and we need something to cheer us up. And this must be it. Like, Bates being free must be the good news we've all been waiting for. And in prison, so Mr. Durant, he teases Bates about uh, his situation. So obviously, Bates realizes that it's weird and that something must have changed, you know. Because he says, oh, you don't look so cheerful now. Maybe something has changed and all that. And Bates is not stupid, so he thinks maybe something has changed. And Mr. Murray, he goes to see Mrs. Bartlett. And she has changed her story. Instead of saying that she went to see Vera in the evening, she said that she was at midday, like more in the early afternoon. So before Bates was there. Because at first she went to see her after Bates came. And this is completely different because she saw her making the pie where she put the poison in after Bates was gone. That's what she said to Anna. But now she says to the lawyer that she saw her before Bates came. So obviously now, well, that isn't proof that Bates is innocent. So, you know, she changed her story. And Murray, he, he realizes that she changed, like she is not saying the truth. And then he goes to see Bates with Anna and they talk about the fact that she changed her story. And um, he says, well, yeah, but it's, you know, it's a big thing for someone like her to lie to a lawyer. So Bates thinks she must have been uh, like bribed or threatened uh, to, like, to lie. And he has an idea of who he might be. And he says, I'm going to take care of it. You know, I'm, I'm going to make everything so that she would say the truth. And so then 
obviously we know who it is because it's only two people that really plotting against Bates. When all the prisoners are in the yard, Bates, he threatens Craig. He says, you will ask her to say the truth. Oh, I will say things to the governor and then you will have more years in prison and during, like everything will be bad for you, for him. So, you know, this Carrie Bates is back. It's really a threat. He says, so you do it or I make your life really miserable. Even more miserable than it already is. And then we see Anna running outside looking for Mary. And Mary is walking with Edith. And she says that Mr. Murray has done it. Like he has a statement from Mrs. Bartlett. And Bates will be free. He will come home. And they're all so glad. And Edith says, have you said anything to Papa? And Mary's like, you need to tell that to him. Because he's miserable right now. And he needs some good news. The three of them goes into the library to see Robert. Robert, who's at that moment, is really, really low. And so she comes just to say that, you know, Bates will be free. And I love it because he says that it's marvelous news and he's smiling. Like he's genuinely smiling. And the last time he smiled like that is when baby's girl was born. So before all the angsty stuff. And I know it technically is not. It was just an episode ago. But it feels like so many things have happened in those two episodes. It feels like it's days and months that just went by. And so he's so relieved. He's so glad. Like it's really moving actually. So yeah, Bates, welcome back to Downton. And everyone obviously will be pleased except Thomas. Because technically if Bates is back, he kind of loses his job. So we're going to follow that in the next episode. Bananas. Now downstairs with all like love pentagonal. I don't even know how to call it. You know the same Thomas, Jimmy, Ivy, Alfred, Daisy. And Thomas is not well. And you know he's really affected by Sybil's death. And Alfred he makes something like oh you know like cheer up. I think it's not very like um, subtle and a bit tactless to say that. And Anna, she takes his defense, like, just leave him alone, you know. And Jimmy, you know, he, he says something nice. And <laughs> at that moment, Thomas, he touches his hand. And you see, Jimmy, he's absolutely not comfortable. Like, Thomas, he touches him a bit too much for his liking. And in the kitchen, Jimmy and Alfred are both flirting with Ivy. It's quite weird because you feel that Jimmy is not really interested in Ivy. But he still wants to flirt with her because she is interested in him and... Because Alfred tries to flirt, so it's more like just to say, I'm a better flirt than you are. Like, yeah, it's weird. And Daisy, she still doesn't like Ivy. Like, she really gives order. And the boys are like, but why, why is she like that with you? And Ivy said, well, I don't know. She just doesn't like me. And this goes on, you know, this, like, the, the four of them goes on and on. We have Alfred flirting with Ivy, Ivy trying to flirt with Jimmy, Jimmy, who's like, sometimes he flirts, sometimes he doesn't care. And you have Daisy being angry at Ivy because Alfred is flirting with her. There's an issue here because it's, it can be very tiring. And Mrs. Patmore, when she says, You know the trouble with you lot, you're all in love with the wrong people. And this is exactly what is happening in this pentagon. I already said it, but Daisy, she likes Alfred. Alfred likes Ivy. Ivy likes Jimmy. Jimmy, we don't really know. I don't think he likes anybody. Like, not in that way. And Thomas, he likes Jimmy. So, yeah, they're all in love with the wrong people, truly. And then downstairs, they talk about religion because, well, upstairs, they're talking about it. And I thought it was a really interesting conversation and some part were really funny. You know, because Carson starts to say, you know, that um, he doesn't wish to persecute the Catholics. And Mrs. Yushi says, Well, 
Well, it'll be a relief for them to know you no longer want them burned at the stake. I love when Kasim says something in Mrs. Shoes, she teases him. And Jimmy says something really quite optimistic for Thomas. A man can choose to be different without it making him a traitor. Like, he thinks maybe there's an opening there. Like, you know, like I said, it's really complicated to be a gay man in the 1920s. And so he tries to see the signs. And since Jimmy never said that he doesn't like him touching him, he tries to see with what he's saying if maybe he is interested. And obviously Anna, she's kind of a, the voice of reason, you know. I don't like discussing religion. We'll only fall out. And surely it's our private business. And Thomas has to say something a bit cheeky. And Carson does not approve, obviously. And I don't know if it was quite funny. Then we see Ivy dancing and humming in the kitchen. And with Alfred and James, they talk about dancing because she says that she loves the foxtrot. And Jimmy is teasing Alfred, saying that he doesn't really like the foxtrot and all that. I really feel that Jimmy, he's not that interesting in Ivy. He just likes to flirt with her because Alfred is flirting with her. You know what I mean? Because they're in little competition, the two of them. And Daisy is not here because Daisy is at the farm with Mr. Mason. Mr. Mason tells her that he wants her to take on the tenancy when the time comes. So to take care of the farm. And I mean, at first she's stunned. She said, but, you know, I am a cook. I'm a woman. And I always thought I spent my life in service. He says, well, you know, you're young. You have 40 years of work. And I don't think that house like downtown will go on as they are now for 40 years. And so it'd be good if, you know, you have something, whatever happens, you know, if, I don't know, they have to... Uh, let the staff go because they don't have enough money whatever you will have something to fall back on because you will be like my heiress so to speak and so I would love for her to come live at the farm so I can teach her how to take care of it I thought it was really sweet like you see how she never expected that because she really thought well I'm going to stay maybe I'll be a cook one day but I'm going to stay in service so it's, it's a completely new world that it's opening in front of her and I love Mr. Mason, I already said it, but I really, really love and I love his relationship with Daisy. Mr. Mason, I think, is, is a, a voice of reason too. And in the kitchen again, because every, almost everything happens in the kitchen, Ivy, she's still flirting with Jimmy. Like, she doesn't give up. Mrs. Papmore's like, well, he, he's not interested. She's like, well, well, he's young. He has to be interested in someone. And Thomas says, well, and that someone isn't you. The way he says it, it's almost like he's hoping this someone might be him. So again, they're all in love with the wrong people. And Daisy, she tells Mrs. Papmore that Mr. Mason wants to give her his farm. Like, you know, make her, like Mrs. Papmore says, a proper heiress. She says, well, he's still kind, but I don't know, I haven't said anything yet, you know, because it's a lot to think about. But you see, like Mrs. Papmore, she, you see that she's glad and happy for her, but at the same time, she is a bit sad. Because if Daisy says yes and she goes live at the farm, Mrs. Papmore, she would be alone. Because I really, really believe that she does care a lot about Daisy, that she would be really sad if Daisy leaves. Because she told her everything. Everything that Daisy knows is because Mrs. Papmore taught her. And yeah, I think she's really attached to Daisy and that it would be really hard for her to let her go. And then through the whole episode, at some point, Alfred kept saying things about Ivy, like, you know, you look different. Like, there's something, like, you know, Miss Papmore says, well, you look a bit red in the face. Are you sure? All right. And we see that, you know, through the whole episode. And then, actually, 
Mrs. Patmore, she realizes that Ivy is wearing makeup and she's angry. You know, on that, she's like Mr. Carson, like, you know, even if she, Ivy says, well, everyone is wearing that now, you know. She's like, we're not in that house. <laughs> oh, poor Ivy. And while you have that, on the other hand, you have Jimmy, who starts playing the piano. And Mrs. Hughes and Anna, they, they smile because obviously the last one who played the piano was William. And, uh, and I says, well, it's, it's nice to see we have another piano player in the house. And she's wondering if it might be too soon, you know, because of Sybil. And Mrs. Hughes says something that is really true. They know that Sybil was a bright young thing. She'll be glad of some music. And I think it's true. But, you know, while Jimmy is playing, again, Thomas is a bit too familiar. And Jimmy is uncomfortable. He talks with O'Brien. He says, you know, I, I wish he would just stop touching me. And Miss O'Brien, you know, she is like, I don't know, you see in her face, like she is loving this because this is all part of her revenge. And to end with uh, Alfred, Ivy, Daisy, all that for this episode, Alfred, he's dancing alone in the kitchen and he asks Daisy to teach him the foxtrot. And I hate it because he kind of manipulates her, you know, because Daisy first says, well, I don't have time. And he says, oh, and me who thought that you would love dancing with me. When he knows that he wants to learn to dance, to dance with Ivy, which I think is really not nice of him to do that. But then she teaches him to dance. And this is quite a good parallel to when she danced with Thomas, the grizzly bear. And again, she was in love with a man who did not love her. This is quite sad, actually. But then Jimmy, he comes in, he actually comes to say to Daisy that Avery only wants to learn the foxtrot to please Ivy. And then Jimmy dances with Daisy, but you see that she is upset by this. Like she feels like she has been fooled, which she kind of has been. And then Carson comes in when Jimmy is dancing with Daisy and he is angry. And all that I say, well, you know, what are you doing? Like this is not how you're supposed to behave. And so in the end, he makes Alfred first footman. And Alfred, he didn't say anything about the fact that he was the first dancing. He's just really happy to be first footman. So Jimmy is angry at Alfred and Daisy. She's really upset at Alfred too. No, she says, you know, why don't you ask Ivy if she has spare time? Because she really feels like he played with her, which he did, you know. So that's not nice. And yeah, again, Mrs. Padmore said it, you know, the problem is that they're all in love with the wrong people. But obviously, all that is not the end, you know, whether it's for Daisy, Ivy, Jimmy, Alfred, or for Thomas and Jimmy. So we just have to wait and see what's going to happen. Bananas. And then just to take two minutes to talk about Edith again. In her last episode, she received a letter from the editor of the sketch wanted her to write for him. And Robert disapproves. We know that. Violet too. And in this episode, the girls are at Crowley House. So Mary, Edith, Cora and Violet. We're going to talk about this uh, luncheon a bit more. We're going to talk about Ethel. But Edith says, well, I wonder sometimes if I should learn how to cook. You know, it might come handy. Because I have to do something. And Isabel, she says, what, did you like written back to your editor? She says, well, no. And Isabel said, well, Matthew told me that Robert did not agree. And Cora, she, at that moment, she's a bit on Edith's side, but she's more mostly against Robert. We're going to talk about about two of them. But, you know, and in the end, Edith doesn't know what to do. So she asks Isabel, do you think I should do it? And Isabel's like, well, if your father does not agree, maybe it's best not to. And Violet is something really um, clever. Says, well, why, why did you bring it up? Like, why did you talk about it if you know that Robert did not approve? 
and so that you don't want her to act against her father like this is pointless but mary she says that she thinks she should do it she thinks she should write for this newspaper and matthew too and i love it because we know mary is not a lot on either side but she's on that even when Edith said that she has written to a newspaper, the way she said, you know, have, have we no tragedy blood was really like, I support her. Why can't she write to a newspaper? So I love it. And it's, it's still the same team. You know, we had the youngest, that's the, the parents, we would say. Just now, Cora might have just changed her tune just because she's mad at Robert. So it's more like being against Robert than being with Edith. But that's not the end, you know, this whole newspaper thing. But I really like to point in to say again that Matthew and Mary and Tom and Sybil would have been on Edith's side. And I think th this means a lot for Edith, especially if Mary is on her side. So I quite like it. But again, not the end. Bananas. Now let's talk a bit more about the management of Downton and Matthew and Mary, because we still have this issue about Downton being mismanaged. In last episode, Matthew, we talked about it with Murray, but Mary was angry because, you know, Sybil just died and it was, <laughs> this was not the moment to do that. And in a really, really lovely scene, Matthew and Mary, they're together in bed. They talk a bit about Sybil and uh, the whole thing about her child being Catholic and all that. We're going to talk about it later. And Mary says, well, that's why we must uh, not take anything for granted. And Matthew keeps saying, that's why I tried to say to Robert, you know, like we can't just think like the money's always going to be there because it's not true. You know, we need to do something if we want to save Downton. Mary then says, they must never take them for granted. Like, you know, we must never take us for granted. This is actually very sad when you know what's going to happen. Um, you know, then them saying that they love each other is really sweet, but really sad. And we know how the season ends. Bananas. But talk about the estate, Matthew and Tom are outside together, actually in the same place where Ma Mary and uh, Matthew were last episode. Again, talk about the estate, how it works, and that this tenant, like, he's not farming this land properly. And Tommy says that he would do better with sheep. And I love it because Matthew's like, how do you know that? And Tom says, well, my grandfather was a tenant in Galway and he had black-faced sheep. So he realized that He's a bit of, he's not that really a countryman, but he knows more about it. I think he knows more about tenancy than Robert ever did, in a way, because he had someone that really was a tenant, or even knows more than what Matthew ever did, because Matthew, you know, growing up in Manchester and being a solicitor, it's not really the same thing as being a tenant. And so after that, they talk about uh, what Tom will do. Will he stay? Will he leave? And he doesn't really know. Like, he, he doesn't know what to do. But this, just saying that, that Tom, that there's a bit of a country man inside of, of him is an opening for his future. And you see that, Matthew, he wants to involve a bit Tom in it because it's what you, you know, you're my brother and like you're in the family. And I think he realizes that at first he was there and people tried to be nice to him and welcome him because he is... Sybil's husband but now that Sybil is dead you realize and I already said it last episode that Robert is only tolerating him and now that Sybil is not here it's really like just you know he doesn't really think of him as the husband of his daughter or the father of his grandchild you know but Matthew he wants to involve him and when the boys are alone at luncheon Matthew and Robert they argue a bit on the estate and Robert's like we must not bore Tommy Tommy's like no I'm, I'm all right you know and Matthew tries to say well he is your son-in-law and his daughter is your only grandchild so for him it's 
enough to include him in all this? And I think, yeah, you know, why can't he be included? And Robert thinks it's, you know, uh, stupid. He's like, well, he's not master. And, you know, if you want to do that, let's just involve Carson and the maid. Again, Robert, he's, he's being master. Like, really, it's a bit too much. Like last episode, when it was like, well, I'm master here, so I'm the one who's going to choose what we would do with Sybil. When, no, you can't because you're not her husband. Like, <laughs> yeah. And now he's not the only master, so he needs just to calm down a bit. Because Matthew is master too. And if Matthew wants to involve Tom, actually, he can. I say Robert, he's really angry because then Matthew says that Downton is being mismanaged. It's like, what? Bad management. Like, really? If he feels insulted and Tom is in the middle of that, he's like, okay, great. But Tom, like Matthew wanting to include Tom in all this is not just something that it said like that. You know, we know in Downton, we know in shows, you do not say anything if there is no use of that after. And so we know that this means something for the future, for Tom's future at Downton Bananas. And then when Robert is alone in the library and Mary comes to talk to him, he's a bit still angry at Matthew and says, has he talked to you about his plan? Oh, it's almost like he says that I just let the, the estate fall to pieces. And Mary, she tries to calm the situation saying, I'm sure he didn't mean that. And, you know, he doesn't want to insult you or whatever. But in a way, it's a way of saying, but he has ID. Without him and his money, the estate will be gone. So you must listen to him because he's right on one thing. Without him, the estate will be gone. And Robert, he did nothing. Like He did the worst investment ever. So yeah, I think maybe he's, he's not doing it properly. But Matthew is right, you know. Like Robert cannot just cannot live like he was before without even thinking to improve so that Downton could live in the long run. But, you know, every story, and I said it, there's a lot of bananas in this episode, but because every storyline is not finished in this episode. And so obviously the whole managing the estate situation and what Tom will do and all that, you know, we will see that again. We will continue to follow that through the next episode. Bananas. Now let's talk about Ethel. Because now Ethel, she's working at Crawley House. Mrs. Bird, she left because she didn't want to work alongside a prostitute. And, well, Ethel, she's not really good at cooking. So it's a bit complicated. And Isabel, she says that she wants to organize a lunch party for the girls. Right, for Cora and Mary and Edith. So that Cora can leave the house, you know, maybe it would do some good. At first, Ethel says, well, I could cook something nice. And Isabel's like, well, you know, we, we don't have to think about that now. And Ethel, she sees Mrs. Papmore in the village and so she asks her for some advice because she wants to cook something nice, but she just wants Mrs. Papmore to help her to give her some advice or some recipe that she could make. And at first, Mrs. Papmore, she doesn't want to because Mr. Carson says that they should not talk to Ethel or have anything to do with her. But Ethel, she's also right, like when she says, you know, you're not afraid I'm going to corrupt you. <laughs> and Mrs. Papmore's like, well, no, no, I'm not. So well, Mrs. Crawley, she has shown me kindness it's just, and she just wants to show some sympathy for Lady Grantham and the girls. So why should she be punished for that? And you see Miss Papmore, she's like, okay, I'd do it. And Ethel, she still says that she might want to cook something nice. But Isabel says, well, not, you know, keep it simple, you know, ham and salad. So you can't go wrong with that because she, she knows that Ethel can't really cook. And so she doesn't want the whole luncheon to be a disaster. Mrs. Papmore, she comes at Crawley House. And she gives Ethel some recipes that she could make that are not really complicated. The first one is salmon mousse. And then I know what Mrs. Padmore says. Anyone who has use of their limbs can make a salmon mousse. She says, well, you know, you can do it. And she says, I will come back to 
see how you're getting on on Thursday morning. So just the morning before the luncheon. Then Isabel, she comes to downtown to invite the girls. I love this scene because well, you realize that Isabel, she doesn't change anymore for dinner. And Cora, Cora, really, she breaks my heart in this scene, but we're going to play later. But she wants to invite the girls. And when she says that, she thought Cora was alone in the library. And she just realized then that Violet was here too. So she says, well, yes, of course, you're invited. But Violet is not stupid. She knows that when she says the girls, it was not her. It was only Cora, Mary and Edith. And at first, Cora doesn't want to go. But then Mary and Matthew come in and Mary says, thank you for the invitation. So that means, you know, we'll go. And so on the day of the luncheon, Miss Parmore comes to see Ethel to give her last piece of advice. And she says to her that she's done well, you know. So it looks like the luncheon will be a success. And when Mrs. Parmore comes out of Crowley House, Carson, he sees her. So obviously, he's not really happy about it. And Isabel, she can smell cooking and she's a bit upset because she didn't want Ethel to cook. And she says, you know, if this luncheon is a disaster, I will hold you responsible. Because obviously she wants to do that to show sympathy, to not to cheer up the girls. But I think, yeah, it's a bit like that. But if the luncheon is not a success, uh, well, I'm not sure they, they are going to be a bit happier. Or it's going to be a bit more difficult. And so then, back at Downton, Cassidy wants to speak with Mrs. Patmore and he's with Mrs. Hughes. And he is angry. Because like, what were you doing at Crowley House? And at first, Mrs. Patmore was like, what? <laughs> Who says I was at Crowley House? I have seen you. Oh, right. Well, I, I was because Mrs. Crowley organized the lunch party and I was helping Ethel. And Carson, he can't believe it. He said, I didn't want anybody going there. And Mrs. Hughes says, well, you know, I know you are head of this household, but Mrs. Patmore, you know, she's not technically under your orders, which is true. You know, we said that even if the butler is kind of the little fathering king of downstairs, he uh, is in charge of the male staff. Mrs. Hughes, as the housekeeper, is in charge of the female staff. And Mrs. Patmore is in charge of the kitchen staff. So technically, it's like I already said, but they're the holy trinity of downstairs. Technically, she's not under Mr. Carson's order. But he's angry, you no. Know? Okay, okay, but if that pleases you to go frolicking with prostitutes, you know, and I love Mrs. Hughes. She's like, oh, that Carson, absolutely not that drama queen. He absolutely does not exaggerate. <laughs> Mrs. Patmore, do I look like a frolicker? And Carson is like, well, who was supposed to be at that luncheon? And Mrs. Patmore says, but you see how she's saying it, a bit like, like she's proud and she's saying it, you know, like she has a chin up. Well, Lady Grantham, the young ladies, and the Dowager. And at that moment, Carson, he almost had a heart attack. He's like, you let a woman of the street cook and wait for people of all family. I'm speechless. And I don't want Mrs. Hughes to Mrs. Papa when Carson has left. I would guess he won't stay speechless for long. Really, Mrs. Papa, Mrs. Hughes, I love them. And so, you know, like uh, at luncheon, when Robert and Matthew, they kind of argue and all that, Carson, he comes to speak to Robert. He says, can I speak to you? Like, he cannot wait. And we know that, well, he wants to talk about the fact that his wife, his daughters and his mother are at Crowley House eating something that has been prepared by a former prostitute. And when the girls are at Crowley House, I absolutely love this scene. They chat, you know, they chat a bit about Edith. And you know, at the beginning, Cora says, well, it was very good. And Isabel says, well, yeah, it was. And Violet, uh, she jokes, she's like, well, don't need to act so surprised. Well, actually, I am. I owe Ethel an apology. And that's when Edith says that she she's wondering if she should learn how to cook. You know, and all that. And then they talk about it. And it's the moment when Mary says that she thinks that Edith should write to her editor. And Matthew, you know, he supports her too. That moment, Robert comes in. And Robert is really angry because, you know, 
And Matthew too. He just heard that. And he just had a fight with Matthew saying that his management of downtown is actually a bad management. He's angry. I love this scene. This scene is not just him being angry at Ethel. It has a lot to do also with his relationship with Cora at the moment. But I just think he works well for Ethel, especially because Violet has really some funny lines. And I just decided, it's long, but I decided that you should listen to the whole uh, scene because it's very good. And I'm going to talk about it after that. Don't worry. I don't need to be fed. We're going, all of you, now. What are you talking about? Do you know who has prepared this luncheon for you? Yes, Ethel, our former housemaid. Who bore a bastard child. What? Robert, Ethel has rebuilt her life. Has she? Do you know what she has built it into? What do you mean? I think Cousin Robert is referring to Ethel's work as a prostitute. Well, of course, these days servants are very hard to find. I don't think you understand the difficulty she's had to face. I couldn't care less how she earns her living. Good luck to her. What I care about is that you have exposed my family to scandal. But who would know? I can't tell you how people find out these things, but they do. Your gardener, your kitchen maid, you... I suppose she has an appropriate costume for every activity. We're leaving. Is this because of me, my lord? No, it's because of his lordship and we're not leaving. Is that a Charlotte Russe? How delicious. I hope it's tasty, my lady. Mrs Patmore gave me some help. I'm glad to know that Mrs. Patmore has a good heart and does not judge. Is anyone coming? Seems a pity to miss such a good pudding. Again, this scene is really, it's not just about Ethel, it's centered around Robert and Cora's relationship. Obviously, just talk about the whole prostitute situation we talked about in the last episode. It is scandalous. I think we now, in 2022, we see that with our eyes, we see it more like it's like we want to help Ethel. Now we just, we see people like, you know, even if your past will always be there, you have the right to have a second chance. Like it's not because you, something bad happened to you that you can't have a great life after that. Back then it was more like your past will always follow you. And like if you have been a prostitute, that will follow you and you can never like rebuild your life in way to speak. So obviously it's very scandalous. But sometimes I also believe, even if I do believe that sometimes women are harsher against each other, some men are with them. I also believe that Women tends to try to help each other, especially against men. I don't know if you know what I mean. At the moment, obviously, Robert is angry because of so many things. Again, talk about it later. And even his speech has changed. No one said who bore a bastard child. Because when we had this whole situation of Ethel, the way everyone was talking, you know, like Richard calling a bastard, and even the way Mr. Bryant reacted to the news, you see that Robert, he wasn't completely, he didn't agree with them. Like, he was not, like, the biggest scene ever for her to have a child with someone, like, to have a bastard child. So, you see, he kind of changed his tune. Even the way Cora talked about it back then, you know, when she thought that Lord Grantham could prevail on Major Bryant's good nature and all that. And Cora, obviously, she's like, well, she has rebuilt her life. Like, it's been a while since, you know, it's, it's not a question about forgiveness, but she's like, yes, she had a child and she wasn't married and what? But when Isabel says that, you know, she was a prostitute, the reaction of everybody is different. Violet's reaction already to the bastard child was a bit like, what, 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 And so the prostitute thing was like, oh, okay. And Violet, I really like her lines, you know. Servants are very hard to find these days. I mean, this girl, I love her. But you see that at that moment, I think they all find it quite a bit scandalous. But I like the reaction of everybody. It's more like at that moment, first, they're all a bit pissed at Robert because the way he acts, it's unrespectful. And then they don't want to leave. Because, wherefore, Isabel is not respectful. And then you realize, Cora, she's angry at Robert. So she just don't want to leave because he wants her to. And Mary, I like how her posture, again, she has a chin up like, 
she's very proud. She says, no, I'm not leaving. More, again, to have a statement. I'm not leaving because you want me to, so I won't. And like I said, Cora, she doesn't want to because she's angry at him. Like when she looks at him in the eyes and says, I'm glad to know that Mrs. Papmore has a good heart and does not judge. It's aimed at him and not just for the ethical situation, you know, but the whole has a good heart and does not judge. So it's all building up, you know, and Robert then he's defeated and he leaves. And again, I'm going to talk a bit more about Cora and Robert's relationship after, but I thought this was a good building up scene. And I like it because everything that she says, everything that is like his anger towards Ethel and all that is actually not just towards Ethel, it's because like something is wrong. Nobody left. They stayed. And Cassidy talks about it with Mrs. Hughes and he's shocked. And Mrs. Hughes too, you know, she's like, whoa, my, my, like not even the dowager, like no one left. Like she is astonished. Perhaps the world is becoming a kinder place. You say kinder, I say weaker and less disciplined. Well, if her ladyship is prepared to visit Crawley House, I dare say you won't object when I do. I won't forbid it, because I have no right to do so. But I do object, with every fibre of my being. But you disappoint me. I never thought of you as a woman with no standards. I just love Mrs Hughes. Like, she's, she's much daring him. Like, okay, I am going. And if you object to it, I don't care. You know, like she's challenging him, like the look she gives him when she when she leaves the room. I just love it. And the servants all obviously talk about it. And mostly he is shocked that they all stayed. This seems really funny. I just love how Mrs. Chu, she always knows what to answer to everybody. Like you just, ugh, she's the best. It's funny that the men are more shocked than the women. You know, like when Miss Yushi knows Ethel, but she wanted to help her. Miss Patmore was ready to help her. Like everyone is less shocked than the men. So it's like I said, sometimes I believe that even women can be cruel uh, towards each other. When it's to be against men, they can actually, you know, stand up together. <laughs> More in the fact of being against men than being really together. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. And I thought she actually comes at Downton because she wants to thank Miss Patmore. It's also a way to say that she has not been humiliated by what happened at Crowley House. You know, she wants to say thank you to Mrs. Papmore because she helped her prepare a good luncheon. And Carson is like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> okay, this is too much. You can't come here. And Mrs. Hughes, she says, you know, I mean, it's nice. It's, it's nice of her to want to say thank you. It's like, well, you know. And she says, well, you know, I hope you will need a help for your fellow man. And like when Mrs. Carson says, well, whatever you say, I know you want to burden me. <laughs> this is quite sweet. But it's almost funny, you know, Carson's reaction, because it's always, it's very theatrical, his reactions, you know, it's very contrasted. Carson has a lot of, it's black or white, not really grey area, so I quite like it. And because Mrs. Shoes, I think she always knows what to answer to him. I think it's really, really funny. Okay, so now we're going to talk about Sybil. Well, I call this part Morning Sybil. And the question about Tom and the baby and the christening and Cora versus Robert. It's, it's almost like a fight. They are divided. Cora is angry at Robert. It's not saying the rest of the family is against Robert, but he realized that he's, he stands a bit alone in his beliefs. So like I said, it's not going to be very pleasant. So if you just want to stop here and not listen to that, I would completely understand. And if not, you know, just, I just cry together, okay? <laughs> Because in case if you don't really know, I say a lot, but I don't know if you just stumble around this podcast and comes in just for this episode because you said, let's just listen to something really heartbreaking. 
I am a cobra chipper. They are my favorite couple in downtown. So these episodes were very heartbreaking for me because I love them very much. And just seeing them or seeing Cora being so angry at Robert and then we didn't know how to talk to each other really breaks my heart. That's why this storyline is really heartbreaking for me, not just because Sybil is dead, but because of what happened to their relationship. And so uh, to start, I wanted to give you my French word of the day. Uh, because, uh, well, you know, the funeral has happened. That is the beginning of the episode. The funeral. Everyone is leaving after the funeral. And so they're all in mourning. And I thought that would be my French word of the day. Not very cheerful, I know. But mourning in French, it's deuil. And it's written D-E-U-I-L. And it's masculine. So you usually say un deuil. And for the verb, you know, where you say to mourn or to grieve. And usually as a verb, we say être en deuil. So like be in mourning or faire son deuil. So like to grieve or to mourn. Yeah, I know. Very, very cheerful. So mourning in French, it's deuil. So the whole family is in the drawing room because everyone has left after the funeral. And Tom, you see, he, I can't even say, say he stares at the window, like he's, uh, he's back from the rest of the family. And I think he just stares into nothingness. His eyes are just red. He's just, he has tears in his eyes. Like he's wretched, obviously. And Matthew, he just says, well, you know, we really want to help. I mean, I want to help. Mary wants to help. If there's anything we can do. And he says, My wife is dead. My past help. Well, thank you. And then when Robert comes in the drawing room, he says, well, the, the last people who left just uh, were looking for you to say goodbye. So well, I was here. But the way she says it, like, it's almost like she can't look at him because she, she doesn't really like she looks at him just to answer him and then she just turns away and he hurts him a lot. And Isabel is living and Violet is living with her and they even says, you know, if there's anything we can do. It's, it's awful because you don't know what you can do, but you're like, if I can do anything, just let me know. That's when Isabel, then she had the idea of the luncheon party. And Violet, she comes to say goodbye to Cora and she says, no, now that it's all over, just try to get some rest. And Violet leaves. Robert, he sat in the chair next to Cora. And you see that he does that. It's almost like a way to try to get a bit closer, to recreate a ball, I don't know, something. And Cora, she says, Is it over? When one loses a child, is it ever really over? And when she says that, Robert, he can't stop looking at her because he's trying to make a connection with his wife. And so when she says that, she just meets his gaze for two seconds and she turn away again. Again, he has tears in his eyes and see how he's hurt by all this. And I say again, downstairs, I sit down. Like I love the fact that Thomas, I already said it, but Thomas is still not well. And that Anna takes his defense. I said it, but I really like it that, you know, she takes his defense because she knows that he knew her. And Thomas says, well, you knew her too. Like, we are the ones that knew her the most. I like that. And then to continue our heartbreak, Cora, she is in her room at night and Robert comes in and he asks her if he can come back into her room tonight. And she says no. And you see that she has a book, but she wasn't really reading. And when Robert comes in, she pretends to read. And you see her face, like you see all the tears that she had cried. Like I think she must have cried every night since Sybil died. You see she also feels exhausted. And through the whole conversation, she doesn't look at Robert. You know, he even says, you know, well, Cora, I know I, I should have listened to you and all that. And she says, you know, please don't, not again. You know, we've been through that. Please don't. And he says, well, you know, but Tapso has a reputation of an expert. And Cora, she's angry. That, you know, okay, yeah, you trust him because 
he's knighted, he has a practice on how he's treated and all that, but he doesn't know Sybil's history. He let all that nonsense wait against our daughter's life. And then he, he challenges her by saying, you think I miss her less than you do? She says, no, I think I should think you miss her more because she almost tells him you're the reason why she's dead. And like I said, she doesn't look at him through the whole conversation, except at that moment when she says, since you blocked the last chance we had to prevent her death. And when she looks at him, like really telling him, you're the reason why my daughter is dead. And so he leaves. And I love it when he leaves and you see her like she was holding her breath because this is hard for her to be angry at Robert because she's sad, she's heartbroken. There's so many things going on inside her head. The next shot is Robert closing the door and crying. And it makes me really sad because they haven't cried together. And you feel how lonely he is because, I mean, Cry keeps saying, well, she said it before, that it's a bit his fault if Sibyl is dead. So he feels guilty. First, because he thinks he's the reason why his daughter is dead. And then he feels guilty because he thinks he's the reason why his marriage is not working anymore. And she's the one with whom he's supposed to share his sorrow, his grief and, you know, all that. But he can't because she's angry at him. And just this and him coming out and crying, it's just, it truly breaks my heart. And talk about the baby at breakfast. So you have Robert, Edith, Matthew and Tom. Tommy says that he wants to leave. Where when he will find a job, he will leave. And Edith's like, yeah, but there's no rush. You know, you just lost your wife, just had a baby. Everything is really complicated. There's no rush. And Matthew says, yes, she's right. You don't need to go like tomorrow. But Robert, he says, I think Tom is right and he needs to leave. Again, you see that Robert, he doesn't like Tom. And at this point, I said that he was tolerating him. I think at this point, he doesn't even want to tolerate him. He's almost like, well, please leave from this house because now since my daughter is dead, so you have no link to family anymore. He just keeps forgetting that his daughter it's his granddaughter, so they, they will always have a link. And so Edith said that she should think about the christening. And she asked him how he would like her to be called. And he says Sybil. And you see that Robert thinks it's stupid. You see it. That, well, it would be maybe painful at first, but I want her to be called Sybil. And Matthew and Edith, they're like, yeah, of, of course, like they understand. And then Tommy says that he wants her to be Catholic. And that Robert, he's astonished. And when he wants to say something, you see that Edith is looking at him and say, no, not now. Don't get angry now. And so he leaves. And Mary is outside and Robert talks to her and he's angry. He's like, he told you that um, he wants the child to be a left footer. And Mary is a bit angry at him because she knows that Sybil, she didn't mind. And Robert, he makes no sense. You know, he's saying that there has been no Catholic in the Crowley since the Reformation. And Mary makes a point, says she's not a Crowley, she's a Branson. And she's half Irish, in case you just forgot. And Robert says, well, but any chance that she will have to achieve something in life would be because of her mother's blood. Like, really, this is very, very snob to say something like that. And Mary says, well, I don't agree. And of course we don't agree. I mean, Sybil, she just left the life where apparently it would be so easy for her to live the life that she wanted so obviously saying that her child, the only chance that she will ever have is because she's her mother's. I mean, this makes no sense. This makes absolutely no sense. And he thinks it's stupid to call her after Sybil. And Mary, she does not agree again. And I do not agree. I mean, there's countless of men that call their firstborn son after them. But why can't a girl be named after her mother? Especially when we know that Sybil's second name is Cora. And I'm sure it was Robert's idea, you know. It's not Cora who just said, let's call our daughter for me. 
Like really, it just he fights a battle that he will not win. You know for already that he will not win, and he just I don't know why he keeps going on it, but he's angry. I think he wants to win something or feel like he's right about something, but everything he says is wrong. And so then he comes to see his mother. They talk about the child, and she asks him if he thought about how we know she would be raised. He doesn't really understand, and she says, "Well." Because if Branson takes her away, wherever he wants to go, it will be his influence that governs her upbringing. He hasn't thought about that. So being angry at Tom and not having a nice relationship with him, it's pointless because he will take his daughter with him. He said so to Matthew. We can understand him. It's the only thing he has left of her mother. So obviously he will take his daughter. So just being angry at him and pushing him away, we only push him away and Sybil's child. So it's stupid. He hasn't thought this through. And Violet, she asks what Cora thinks about that. And he says that she doesn't say much, but she doesn't say anything to him. And so then Violet, she asks, She still holds you responsible? She's wretchedly unhappy, if that's what you mean. I will not criticize a mother who grieves for her daughter. I think she's grieving for her marriage as well as for Sybil. Robert, people like us are never unhappily married. What do we do if we are? Well, in those moments, a couple is unable to see as much of each other as they would like. You think I should go away? Or Cora could go to New York to see that woman. It can help to gain a little distance. I can't seem to think straight about any of it. My dearest boy. There is no test on earth greater than the one you've been put to. I do not speak much of the heart, since it's seldom helpful to do so. But I know well enough the pain when it is broken. I love this scene because I just love how Violet says, well, Cora can go and see that woman. So that woman being Martha, being Cora's mother. But what I love is where Robert, again, like last episode when his mother talked to him, you see, he's holding back his tears. But through all that, Violet, she is touching her rings, like her wedding ring, maybe her engagement ring. Like she's touching them through the whole scene when they talk about marriage. And, you know, when, when she says, like, in a way, of the pain of broken heart. And I love it because she's not really too sentimental, um, Violet. But when she says things, it really means something. It's really moving. And you said Robert is really touched by that. And I really love this scene, especially for this little, you know, detail. I don't know if you ever noticed that, that Violet is touching her rings, but I love this little detail. But like I said, Isabel, she has invited the girls. And when she comes in, Cora, she breaks my heart because you see that she must be a good hostess. She is smiling, but like, it's not a real smile. Her eyes are red, like her eyes are glassy. Like, and at first she doesn't want to accept and when she says that she doesn't want to go, you see Violet, she's like, oh, you should go. Like, it would be good for you to just leave this house for a bit. But when Mary comes and says thank you to Isabel, you realize that that means, you know, yes, they're going. And then they invite actually Isabel to stay. And Robert has invited Mr. Travis because obviously he wants to maybe change Tom's mind by the whole idea of the child being Catholic and all that. And this dinner, I think it's quite interesting. It's the dinner that happens just before the scene where the servants talk about religion. Because Travis, obviously being Anglican, Catholic, he doesn't really like them. And actually, Tom is like, well, I'm Irish, so I don't care what the English thinks about it. <laughs> no, he says, okay, so 
God is not really pleased about the people from France or Italy. And then Edith comes in and Mary and Matthew and Isabel saying, you know, lots of countries where some are Catholics or even some uh, maybe from another religion. But it's all the same thing is it's about God, you know, you know, so like, oh, and the Spanish and the Russians and Portugal and all that, like, you know, they do not please God. Like the only people that are right, it's the Anglicans, like, <laughs> and through all that, Cora, if he's actually not there. Like, this is a burden to be. Like, she doesn't care about all this, you know. Like, she is so down. She, there's no life anymore in her eyes. Like, it's heartbreaking. And Robert tries to make in peace. He says, Poor Mr. Travis, you're all ganging up on him. Well, you and Granny are ganging up against Tom. Not me. The Dowager Duchess of Norfolk is a dear friend. And she's more Catholic than the Pope. I simply do not think that it would help the baby to be baptised into a different tribe from this one. She will be baptised into my tribe. Am I the only one to stand up for Sybil? What about her wishes? Sybil would be happy for the child to be a Catholic. How do you make that out? Because she said so, to me, on the day she died. Did she? Oh, God, did she really? I am flabbergasted. You're always flabbergasted by the unconventional. But in a family like this one... Not everyone chooses their religion to satisfy the Brits. I like this because Cora, she said nothing to this whole conversation. A moment she opens her mouth, it's aimed at Robert. It's, again, like what happens at Quarry House, even in the scenes after that. It's about the conversation, but it's more just because she's angry at Robert. I really love when, you know, Mary says that Sybil will be happy for the child to be Catholic. Tom, he's surprised. It's like, really? Did she really say so? Because you see that it means a lot to him. And Cora, when she says... Robert, you know, you're always flabbergasted by the unconventional and not everyone chooses their religion to satisfy their bread. It's almost like, you know, he's been shut to silence and he looks at his mother in almost to say, see, like my marriage, it's, it's broken right now. But she says that so coolly, no emotions. And I think it was really interesting for her to say that because she has a different religion from her father. So it's a bit different than Tom because Tom wants her daughter to be a Catholic, which would be a bit easier for her maybe to be Anglican if she lives in England. But I like the kind of parallel because for his father, you want his children to be Jewish so it would be easier for them in life. So you can live, you know, in the same family with different religion. But I just like it. And obviously Cora is well sitting great Robert. And Violet, after, uh, well, what Robert said to her and what she just witnessed, she asked Clarkson to come to see her and talk about Sybil's death. And she wants to know what was the chances of Sybil's survival because Cora thinks that if they would have listened to him, Sybil would have lived. What I love is that he says, we cannot speak of it with any certainty. She may have lived, but I can't be sure because nothing is sure. And I like the fact that if you compare to Tapso, who said, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure she will live, he was sure and she died. Since the beginning, Claxon, he said, well, of course, I can't be sure. I can't say, yes, a 100% chance she will live. No, but there was a chance. But Vyach says, you know, you have created a division between my son and his wife. When the only way they could overcome this is if they are together. And so Claxon, you understand what she wants. Do you want me to lie? And she said there was no chance at all. And she says, lie is so unmusical a word. I want you to review the evidence, honestly and without bias. Claxon says, you know, even to appease suffering, I can't just say an outright lie. I can't just say Sir Philip Tapsell was right. And you see that she's a bit like annoyed by this. Like, oh, have we nothing in common? Because what she wants him to say is to say that Sir Philip Tapsell was right. And I'm on Claxon here saying that he can't just say that because Sir Philip Tapsell, he was completely wrong. 
But I I understand Violet for wanting to reunite Cry and Robert. Because I think even if she I don't think she like really approves of her son being madly in love with his wife and all that. I think she sees that and she knows that he's in love with her and that now he's heartbroken, that Cora is heartbroken. She doesn't want that because it doesn't help anyone. And so to call back about the girls at Crowley House, about Cora being angry at Robert, you know, when Isabel says to Edith that uh, Matthew told her that Robert was against Edith writing to a newspaper, Cora, she says, What difference does that make? Oh, really, my gosh. We're all family. I'm not letting the side down. I'm just saying that Robert frequently makes decisions based on values that have no relevance anymore. Well, I love in that. So first, Violet, she's a bit, you know, uh, surprised. I like, really don't say that. What I love is Mary and Edith exchanging looks at that moment. Like, I think they've been questioning their parents' relationship for a while. And they've been together a lot more than they were in the past. And I think they've been really uh, worried about their parents. Because especially Mary, I don't think she's the most, like, open and happy about them being... She doesn't want to show them that she likes the fact that her parents are in love. I don't know how to say it, you know. No, she likes to make fun of them. No, when she said, oh, you know, that's really smart people sleeps in different rooms and all that. But I think it really breaks her heart to see her parents being so distant and her mother being so angry at her father because they realize that they, they need to be together. And I think, I really think that Cora, especially Cora, is one holding the family like together. And it's their love, Cora and Robert being in love that kind of had every pieces together. So now everything is falling to pieces. And I just love how Mary and Edith just exchange this look like because what Cora says at that moment is really because she's angry at Robert. And I said it, she's more against Robert than being on Edith's side. And like it's like, you know, when Mary and, and Edith are outside and Anna tells them that Bates is going home, when they thought about, oh, you need to say it to Papa because he needs good news. And when they look at each other, like, maybe this is at least a good news because they know that their father is really not in a bad place right now. And Mary, so after the luncheon, after dinner, Mary, she comes to see Robert in the library. I really love this scene. Uh, you know, that's when they talk a bit about Matthew and, and all. First, I think Mary, she understands her father. Mary, she really like a, a first son, like an heir. I think that's how Robert sees her a bit, even if she's a, a girl. And I think because now uh, where she's more grown up and where she's married and she also feels like she's the heir because she's married Matthew, she has a right to really speak to her father like a grown up. I don't know if you know what I mean. Like Because I like the fact that she's the one that tries to make her father see sense and tries to bring her parents back together. Uh, so like when Edith, you know, said, you know, when he was starting to get angry about the Christian, when she tells him with her head, like, no, don't say anything now. But this scene with Mary, I, I really love it. And I like it that it's in the library because it makes me think about the scene when he told her that he knew about Pamuk and that he said that she should just break off with Carla and all that. I think it was quite a tiny parallel where I see that like that. I just love it. So I just put this scene because I think the scene is really good. I just take off everything about Matthew because we already talked about it. I wish you'd come back to the drawing room. I'd only set your mother's teeth on edge. She'll come through it. She will. Which brings me to your performance today. How did that help? I was angry with Isabel for exposing you all to gossip. You were angry, all right. But not with Isabel or Ethel. I think it's because the world isn't going your way. Not anymore. You won't win over the christening. Not if you're against me. I'm never against you, but you've lost on this one. Did Sybil truly not mind? She wanted Tom to be happy. She loved him very much, you know. We all need to remember that. I keep forgetting she's gone. I see things in the paper that would make her laugh. 
I come inside to tell her that her favourite rose is in bloom. And then suddenly... Say that to Mama, please. She doesn't want to hear it from me. Not only because she's right, he's angry because the world isn't going his way. I always say it's easier to be angry because you control anger much better than you control your grief and you control being sad. And I love when Mary says that Sibu loved Tom and that she wanted him to be happy and that they need to remember that. Because Robert doesn't think about it. He just sees Tom and, as this man who seduced his daughter and just took her away from him. And he doesn't see him as the man his daughter married because she was in love with him. And the end was, you know, we do not see Robert expressing his grief and his sadness of Sybil being dead. Only with tiny moments where he only has tears in his eyes and all that. And I just love this moment when you realize that, yes, he's hurt. Like, he is wretched. And Mary begging him to say that to her mother so that, you know, maybe try to hear together really, really breaks my heart, especially when he says, well, she doesn't want to hear it from me. Like, he knows that. No, even in the beginning, we said, well, I, would, I would only set your mother's teeth on it. She says, well, she doesn't want to see me anymore. She doesn't want to talk to me except to be mean, uh, which is only what happens in this episode. Every time Cora actually speaks to Robert, she's being mean for the sole purpose of being mean because she knows she wants to hurt him and she knows it will hurt him what she says. She's very, very smart. And I think she, she knows him too well. She knows exactly what to say so that he would be hurt. And then just a sweet scene when Mary and Matthew are coming to the nursery with Tom and Sybil, you know, just seeing the baby. It's really sweet because this is the younger generation, like they are the future and they stand together. They're on the same team, I would say. And I really found this scene really sweet. And then we oh, are almost finished with the angst and the tension between Cora and Robert. But um, Robert is in the library and Cora comes in. I just love how he hears the door opening, but he doesn't turn around until he hears Cora and he just not turns around. He turns around and he stands up. Well, he stands up obviously because she's a woman, but like it's so quick. Like it's almost like every time Cora is near him or wants to talk to him or says something, he he is hoping that it might be the beginning of them just getting back together or something like that. And um, apparently they received a note uh, from Violet and she asked them to come. And this in like I said, Cora knows exactly what to say and how to say it because there's the way. You know, she's usually so sweet and her words, her tone, her look, it's really like knives just directed at Robert just to hurt him. I can stand anything but a lecture on marital harmony. <laughs> Do we have to go? I think so. We needn't stay long. Good. You look very nice this morning. Don't flirt with me, Robert, not now. And you see when she says, you know, I can't say anything but a lecture on marital harmony. At first he laughs because he thought it was kind of a joke, but then he sees that she's not joking at all. And the way she says good, when he says, well, I don't think we need to stay long. Like good because like almost it's torture to be in the same room as you. Like it's awful. And he tries, you know, to make a step forward saying you know, that she looks nice. And she said, well, don't flirt with me, Robert. Like it's almost like at the moment he feels this is the end, you know. Like, we can't never be together. Like, this, there's nothing we can do. Like, it's, it's finished. My marriage is over. Like, and so then after then, Anna comes in with the good news. So it's, it's really good to see him smile after that. And then the last scene of this episode. Cry and Robert, they are at the Dower house. But when they arrive, Clarkson is here. And at first, Robert, he wants to apologize. Because I should, I should have listened to you. But Clarkson said, please, I just want to say something. That night when Sybil died, 
I told you that, you know, if we had delivered the baby by cesarean, they would have a chance, Cebu might have lived. And I made a lot of research, you know, and yes, it is true that you can save, sometimes you can save the mother with that, but this, there's only a small chance. And Cora, she is in agony. Like, you don't even know how she's able to stand at that moment. She said, but there was a chance, you know, and Clarkson, sometimes he looks at Violet because, you know, Violet wants him to say there was no chance, but Clarkson, he can't say that. You know, he can't just say that because, yes, he has his pride, but because he was right. Then he says, but there was only a tiny chance. And first, Robert says, so Sir Philip Tapsell was right. And Clarkson then was like, oh, well, no, I can't go that far. You know, he ignored every symptoms and he, he was so arrogant and I'm on his side. And you see that at first, I just be annoyed, like, why did you go in that row? But I, I'm on Clarkson at that moment, really. Like, he can't say that Tapsell was right. And Robert asked him, but Sybil was going to die. This is the outcome. Crowd, she at first, she just wants to hang on to the fact that there was a chance but Clarkson said, well, just a tiny, tiny one. And I think that when you, you know, put everything together, and yes, Lady Sybil was going to die. And I just love that Robert, he doesn't say Lady Sybil was going to die. He says Sybil. Like in this moment, there's so many emotions that he even forgets to put the title name. Because usually when you're in a family, yes, you can say Sybil without the title. But when you're with others, you put the title first, you know. And then so Clarkson, he leaves. And Robert, he, he turns to Cora and she just breaks down. I think she's been hanging on on the fact that they might have a chance. I mean, that she could have lived, like there was a chance. And when the daughter just says, well, I think she would have died wherever, you know, we would have done. This is too much. And she breaks down. And Robert comes to her. And you see, he comes slowly and he puts his arms around her, but so sorry because he doesn't know if she's going to reject him or not. And then they just cry in each other's arms. And when they're crying together, you see that Violet, she turns her gaze, well, like she even turns away from them to give them some privacy because she's not supposed to, but to see that, you know, I just love this tiny thing because, you know, them showing up affection for each other is not something that I think that she approves. But at that moment, she's like, they need it. And she just turns so that, you know, like I'm intruding in some way. And I'm not supposed to be here. And I don't know if it was made on purpose, but the hug, the way they're hugging, you know, with Robert, with his arms around her, it kind of is the same than the one that they shared when Cora announced that she was pregnant. I don't know if it was made on purpose, but I just like that they hug in the same way when they learned that they were going to have another child and when they just lost one. I'm saying the same is because Robert, he, I don't know if I could say that he circles her with his arm, but almost like as a protective gesture. I don't know if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. And it's almost like he, yeah, like he has him around her, but he is holding his hands, like he is holding on to her at the same time. Like he doesn't want to let it go because he has been waiting for connection with his wife for so long that he doesn't want to let go because now he realizes that she has let him being near her and he doesn't want to let go. They're literally, they're clutching at each other. And Julian said that for him, this scene is one of the best scenes of the whole show. And I have to agree, like this scene is just, there's so many that is said with not that much. And just this moment when she breaks down. And actually, Hugh about this in Hugh Bonneville, he said that Elizabeth McGovern was extraordinary. That apparently they only have like five minutes or something to do this scene. 
and that she was absolutely amazing and fantastic and i have to agree with him i even want to say they were both like everyone like you see the tension through the whole scene from the moment they enter the room to then Clarkson leaving the room and all that like and then i'm gonna say it say something that i know i'm gonna say everybody thinks in fandom but at least everyone who likes cora and who are co-bishopers and all that Elizabeth McGovern has been robbed of her Emmy for that season because this storyline for these two episodes, especially this one, her morning Sybil and this last scene, she deserved an Emmy for that and she didn't get one. I'm going to say it. I'm going to manifest it. She was robbed. Okay. And then before talking about what I feel about all this, I'm going to give you my music of the day. It's a music that I always loved and I think it's funny because I think it's sad but hopeful at the same time. And this version actually breaks my heart a bit more. But I think it really represents Sybil a lot. So, yeah. If I die young, bury me in satin, lay me down on a bed of roses, sink me in the river at dawn, send me away with the words of a love song. with you when she stands under my colors oh yeah life ain't always what you think it ought to be no ain't even gray but she buries her baby the sharp knife of a short life well i've had just enough time if i die young So that was If I Die Young, and this is the Glee version. It's sung by Naya Rivera. This song always makes me cry, but since she passed away, it breaks my heart even more. But I thought this represents Sybil really truthfully, because I don't know why I always thought this song was sad, but has a bit of something of a hope in it. And one thing that I do know is that Sybil never would have wanted her parents to fight over her death. Sybil was, like Mrs. Hughes says, she was a bright young thing. She was the sweetest spirit ever. And she loved her parents dearly. She even said it, you know. I think she loved the fact that her parents were in love with each other. So seeing that or knowing that her parents would fight over her death would break her heart. Because I already said it, but I don't think that Robert is responsible. He was stubborn and really at some point I really wanted to shake him, say, stop thinking only about you like listen to others but in my mind in my pre-canon mind and i know it's not just me it's some things that have been been discussed in the fandom because sybil second name is cora it has been said that it's maybe because cora almost died while giving birth to sybil so robert he decided to give cora as the second name for his daughter because he didn't know well at the moment he didn't know if cora would still be alive or not and i just keep thinking just imagine if the last time a baby was born in the house, the mother almost died, like you almost lost your wife. When now you have your own child who's going to give birth, you are afraid because you only want the best. I already said it. He only wants the best for his girl. Like any good father, he wants the best. 
So he hired an expert, someone that everyone says he's an expert, you know. He maybe had has friends or kind of relation and everybody claim you should you should go there because everyone says he's great, like he's an expert, he's a specialist and all that. So obviously we listen to him, but he has no idea. Like he has no medical training and doesn't really know things about babies and pregnancies and stuff. He doesn't even really want to know the details. So he just he wanted the best. And he made the mistake of not listening to other because he's really stubborn. I think his issue lies a lot with Tom, really. I think there's a bit of that. Like he can't even think a minute that the life of his daughter could be in the hands of his former chauffeur, who's a Catholic and a revolutionary and all that. So he made a mistake on that. He made the mistake of not listening to his wife. But deep down, I do believe that he is not to blame. I know some people were quite angry at Violet for asking Clarkson to lie and I like the fact that he didn't really lie. He did say that he was not really a chance and that Sybil might have died. And I made some research, well I, actually I asked my best friend, uh, she studied for a time to be a midwife, so I asked her about eclampsia. And it is rare but not as much as you think it is. Like now she says it's not that rare to have mothers that are in stage of pre-eclampsia but now you can, once you know that when they're pre-eclampsia you can take care of them and and deliver the baby safely and the mother will be safe, the baby will be safe and all that. But when, like Claxton said, once the fits, the seizures have started, now there's still like mothers that die during childbirth because of eclampsia, but it's rarer because now with all the new technology, when the seizures have started, then they are put in intensive care and all that. But when I asked her, do you think like back then, once the fit have started, you know, there was no chance. She said, well, I do believe that a century ago, yeah, there's a good chance that once it started, you can't do anything. Like it's, it's over, like she's going to die. And that even the preeclampsia situation when Clarkson said we need to deliver the baby past caesarean, yes, there were a lot of chance that she might have died because again, it was a century ago. I'm sorry if some of you that listen to that are doctors or have some medical knowledge that what I say is not really accurate. Like, I hope it is because I asked her, I wanted to know. But I remember when I met her watch Downton and she watched this episode, she told me the moment they said she might have eclampsia, I knew that she was going to die. <laughs> so I thought it was really like, okay, <laughs> this is uh, nice. But yeah, so he didn't really lie when he said there was almost no chance. And to be honest, I just want to say one thing. Sibor is dead. Whether... Clarkson was right or Tapso well Tapso was not right at all but whether Clarkson was right and like there was a chance or not Sibyl is dead and whatever the answer is it will not bring her back and I think like Cora Cora she's angry and it's easier to be angry than just like I said just to be desperate and sad and heartbroken so to I think to control her grief and her sorrow she prefers to be angry at Robert because she doesn't know who to blame actually she can't think that it was God's will that Sybil would die. It's not possible for her to believe that, you know, there was no chance that she needs to find a culprit. And the only one that she can blame at that moment that she wants to blame is Robert. Just to be angry and so that she doesn't think that she will never see her baby anymore. And I'm really glad that actually Violet made this reconciliation because they could never have gone through all that without being together. Like I said, she's so angry at Robert that the only time she looks at him really in the eyes to actually be mean is to hurt him. And she knows him so well that she knows exactly what to say. That he would be hurt and he doesn't know what to do. What I feel really sad is that we do not see him grief. Like we do not see him really like crush. He's having like the worst time ever. And I wish we could have seen him more like how he feels. 
but he has he had to bottle everything inside him because it's almost if um, he feels like if he starts to cry or being really sad in front of his wife she's going to be even more angry at him so yeah but in the end i really believe that sibyl would never ever have wanted them to fight over that that's why i wanted to put this song in this episode and not the last one because i don't know because i thought it was it was fitting and and yeah and before wrapping this up i wanted to talk about some fan fictions and when i said some i think I have nine so it's a bit a lot and well you know i love Ryan Roberts so that's all that I read actually I only read covert fan fictions because uh, well <laughs> they're my favorite what I love about fan fiction is that you can write about the same scene every person is different every point of view is different so even if it's the same scene it would be I mean the the finished product would be different that's what I love it's about their reconciliation most of it all their time around you know episode five and six so I want to share that with you most of them are really short. It's one shot or a couple of chapters. The first one is really dear to my heart because the first fanfiction I've ever read was from them. It's called Together by ZAB12. They're all on fanfiction and I will put the link in the description of this episode. I love it because it's very sweet and it's the after when they come back from Clarkson, when they reconnect. Cora saying that she is sorry for what she has put Robert through. But Robert's also sorry and just them being together really dear to my heart because like I said the first fiction that I've read was actually fiction from ZB12 and so it's the one that made me want to read more so that's why I wanted to share that. The other one I loved it and I think about it a lot when I think about uh, the scene between Mary and Robert in the library it's called Still by an older Michigas and it's actually about the scene where Mary and Robert are in the library but Cora is listening to the door so she listens to everything that Robert is saying and when I say everything, everything, and the end, you know, when he says that, he keeps forgetting that she's gone. And then about, again, the beginning of their reconciliation. And I love the idea that she might have heard, like, she listened. I love it. And yeah, I'm going to say I love it every time. But if I share it with you, it's that I love it. So, yeah. Next one oh, is so good. It's called On Grieving by Random Abiding. And there's five chapters. It's about the five stages of grief. So you have denial, anger, bargaining guilt depression and acceptance and I love the idea of doing something like that of taking the five stages of grief and making a story about all of that and through Cora's eyes and how she deals with Sybil's death so well written you have to read that like really it's so good then it's Blame and Forgiveness by Countess of Cobert it's two chapters and one is a scene that they created that followed what happened in episode five it's about what Cora says in episode six when she says, no, let's not go through all that again. So they must have talked about, you know, Robert should have listened to Clarkson and all that. And so they made a scene, a really heartbreaking one. And I love it. And then the next chapter, it's about after they were at the Dower House with Clarkson and again, their reconciliation. And I love it because, again, like I said, it's the same scene. But even if you read about the same scene over and over again if it's a different writer they will write it differently and so i love it then steel and stone by what's the briard hope i see it properly what i love in this it's cries angry but i love it because at the moment you have mary who comes talking to her and saying you know stop being angry at papa because he lost a child too then you have tom coming in too talking to her and i love when you have all the characters that come in because they want to help because mary Tom, Edith, all that, they're not stupid. They are seeing that there's a problem and they want to help because they want their parents to get along again. I think it's 
one of the only ones where you have really older people coming in to try to reconciliate them. I really like it. Then, I have to say, it's probably one of my favorite about what happens after Clarkson. It's called Nothing Left to Say by a Bumper Prize. And so, like I said, it's what's happening after when they come home, uh, after being at the Dower House. What I love, so you have their reconciliation, but they talk about their son. And I love it because, yes, they've already been through losing a child, but they have been through that together. And I love the parallel. I think it's really sweet. And actually, every time I think about this episode, this is one of the first things that comes to my mind. You know, the things I'm talking about, what I love is how they express Robert's feelings and Cora's feelings. But it's, like I said, it's really nice because they all have different point of views. And so they all kind of different, even if, you know, you have a common theme. So it can be that different. But there is some subtle difference and I love it. Then the next two are actually really recent and they broke my heart the first time I read it. I was like, okay, thank you. Like I literally cried reading it. It's really recent because it was written this summer. The first one is A Little Less Lost by Bella Cecilia. I hope I'm saying her name right. I'm sorry if I mispronounce it. Again, the reconciliation after Clarkson. How she made it, I don't even have words. Like I just remember reading it and crying and feeling like she just light up a light at the end of a dark tunnel and again it's the same scene i'm saying again but they just talk about the same scene it's also different and i just love when they talk about this reconciliation because you always have this moment of the craft is really bad because she has put robert through hell when he was already in hell because he lost his daughter but robert's being really bad because it's still a bit his fault that his daughter is dead and oh i don't know what to say really i'm so bad at expressing what i feel when i read something but yeah it was absolutely perfect and I loved it. And the next one, I promise it's almost finished. It's I Heard Every One of Them by Why Didn't They Ask Cora. First, this is one of the best names ever. And it's a three-part story. So Cora is still angry at Robert and Robert is sleeping in the dressing room. But Robert is having bad dreams about all this and she hears him cry and scream. And she comes to the dressing room to try to soothe him. You know, and every time he never wake up what she thinks, he never wakes up and she stays there because it feels like she needs to be with him, but she can't be with him during the day because she can't be with him when he's like awake. And it's so heartbreaking, but powerful the way it's written, because first it's about Cora, then it's about Robert, then it's about them together. Absolutely brilliant. Like you have to read this. Like this is oh, so good. And the last one really last but not least it's a multi-chapters fiction there's 15 chapters and it's called i'll make the most of loving you first i love the fact that the title is actually the title of the downtown theme the music that is the downtown theme actually first it's a song with lyrics and it's called i'll make the most of loving you and it's by modern american girl and it is what if cora can't forgive robert she can't she's unable to do it and she travels to Newport. She follows Violet's advice and watches when maybe Cora can come to New York to see that woman where she lives because she needs to figure out where she is right now, how to go on with her life now that Sybil is dead. But then Robert, he follows her like he goes to America because he wants to win her back and bring her back home. It is heartbreaking, really, because all you have, you know, crabbing, angry at him, hurting him, him doesn't know what to do, like all that, you still have it. But he tries. And what I love is he keeps trying. He's like, I'm going to bring her home. Because in all of this, in all of these stories, the thing that is common is that at the moment, Robert, he thinks that Cora doesn't love him anymore. 
so it's really heartbreaking and almost when he realized that yeah she still loves him it's like he just discovered the world again he was in a in the shadows and then there's light again because she says that she still loves him and i love this idea of her not forgive him already and need time to figure out something and it's really 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 well written and i don't want to spoil you but in the end we arrive at their reconciliation but in a different way and i love it okay so it's a bit of a spoiler but you know everything is heartbreaking at the moment and at the end of this episode they kind of have you know we have their reconciliation so i'm not gonna send you read something that will break your heart into a million pieces without something to put the pieces back together okay so if you read it i can tell you that in the end all the way that ends well okay so yeah oh my god this episode is much longer than i realized but i really want to talk about this fiction i'm really sorry if there are no cover shippers out there that listen to it because that's the only thing i read because i love them so much and there's so many fictions i haven't read yet that i can't you know try to read about other ships because I'm like, no, I need to read every corporate thing ever written. So it might take a while. But yeah, in the end, I mean, it was really sad and I didn't cry that much. I did break down a bit, but not that much. I thought it would be worse. But I hope you enjoyed this episode, even if it was a bit hard and a bit long and me talking about corporate for, I'm not going to say hours, but a lot. I hope I'm not too boring about it. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it and and if you want to talk about this episode or the last one just you know us talking about how how broken we were about Sybil's death you can send me a message and so I will see you next Sunday to talk about episode 7 of season 3 of Downton Abbey until then stay safe take care of yourself stay hydrated and don't forget Vive la France! Uh, 